We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. This is our first time, our inaugural live show here on Big Blue Banter YouTube. It's exciting, man. I'm taking a look right now at the YouTube and seeing if it's actually showing up live. It looks like we are live, so that's good to go. I'm excited as well to be here. See Dougie Analytics, Jamie in the comments, Mark Cavarello. Thank you, or Cavallaro. Thank you to all, Bill Hartnett. Thank you to all for joining us for our first live show here, Big Blue Banter on YouTube. Um, we just decided, look, we're going to do like a little state of the giants here, shoot the shit and take your questions. Once you guys have questions, Hey, Darius Smith, I see you. What's up. We're going to, we're going to let some more people float into uh, maybe start this at two minute mark or something. Once we get, you know, a few more people in here. So what's up crunch L how you doing today, buddy? Dan, I appreciate how you went back to Mark's last name after you really messed it up. Yeah. I actually was going to call you out on messing it up, but then you actually circled back and corrected yourself. And I'm actually, I'm happy for you. I don't know if I would have done that. I would have been like, hopefully no one heard that. <laughs> no, I had to get Cavallaro. I feel like you can't, you can't mess up a name like that. Let's see if we got, okay, let's take a look real quick. Here, check your mic too, buddy. Okay. Okay. We can do that too. Make sure that looks good. Um, yeah, not the right mic. It's a good start. Here we go. That sounds like a better mic to me. Uh, Charo, what's going on, my friend? I, I knew I was going to mispronounce your name one time. I was going to have to say it. I've talked to you a bunch on Twitter. You know, I did the best I could there. Crunch L, you said wave. Here you go, buddy. Um, all right. So one thing we can talk about now while we wait for a few more people to filter in, Nick, is uh, my trip out to the West Coast. We never discussed my hiking story. Uh, we didn't do it in the last two podcasts. So I'm going to do a quick story about my trip out to Arizona. So myself, my brother, my dad, and my mom went out to Arizona two weeks ago. Our plan was to go to the Grand Canyon and hike the Grand Canyon. Now, my parents are in really good shape relative to how old they are. They're in their mid-60s. They play tennis all the time. They run on the treadmill. There's a difference between being in that kind of shape, heart health shape, and hiking shape. Hiking shape, especially if you're going to end up doing, you know, something like we did, requires a lot more leg strength and things of that nature. So we went on a tour. We went to the Grand Canyon, Nick. I haven't even told you this story. And my parents wanted to do a, a hiking guide, and we luckily got connected with a really awesome dude. Um, so for those who don't know, take a hike Southwest. You can find his, you can find him there. It, it, his name's Ken. He's a great dude. He was real funny. And also not only that, he was real understanding of our situation, which we're about to get to. So take a hike Southwest, check it out. So 
he tells us, Nick, that, all right, you can go anywhere in the Grand Canyon. You can go to a little touristy spots, but we're going to have you go on a different kind of hike, Nick, where to get into this hike alone, you have to go through an area of the Grand Canyon where you need to type in a code just to get through and to get to the trailhead. Now, in the, in the days after that, my brother and I and my mom for one of them, we did like the touristy hikes, Nick, where it's like very nicely paved and everything. This hike we did with our buddy Ken, I'll tell you what, this wasn't paved at all. This was rocks throughout the entire thing, like a rock scrambled down. So we're hiking downway into this thing. And this is a long hike. You know, this is, we started at 8.30 a.m. It's about 2 p.m. We haven't, or at that point, I think it was probably about 1 p.m. We hadn't eaten lunch and my dad is going, Look, I got a cramp in my calf. This is really oh, man. It's pure rocks going downhill. My mom's toughing it out. She's not saying much. And my brother and I have a little powwow. We're like, all right, we got to, we got to, my dad's a prideful man. And like, he's not going to stop unless you force him to stop. He's like, we got to get dad to stop. We got it. This is getting dangerous. This is crazy. Like these are straight rocks. You're going down rocks. Like there's no paved at all. You're straight up stepping on rocks. And so we tell him, you got to stop that. We got to turn around. You got to stop. And we were like getting close to the point where there was the waterfall at the bottom. So it was like, we only had another like mile and a half, two miles toward that waterfall. So he wanted to tough it out. So he forced us, we went another half a mile and then we finally got him to be like, all right, that's it. We're stopping. We're turning around. We're eating lunch now. And my brother and I are going to finish out the hike. So we tell them we're going to finish out the hike. And my mom says the funniest thing, Nick, she goes, really? How long are we going to have to be waiting for you at the top? And my brother and myself and the guy just start laughing right at her. Like, you won't be waiting at all at the top. We are going to get to the bottom of this hike. We're going to pass you back on the way up because they were going so slow by that point. They were just like grunt. Their legs were just dead at that point. And the craziest part is their legs were dead and they had, we had only uh, hiked down into the mountain. Like, we still had to go all the way back up. There were multiple switchbacks on the way back up. And like, we knew there was going to be bad for my dad and my mom. So, anyway, we go to the bottom, we go to the waterfall. We get back up. We pass them like an insane amount of like closely. <laughs> they made it maybe like a mile back up before we passed them through there. And my brother and I didn't take many breaks, but so it's like understandable. But my dad looked terrible at the time. My mom looked terrible. I was nervous, but my brother kept reassuring me like they're in really good heart health. So the real issue here is just like the legs and like getting back up this mountain. Like they're climbing straight up at that point. It was a straight, you know, uh, what's it called? You know, elevation up at that point. So. Yeah. Shout out to Ken, the guide here. And remember, if anyone's going out west, I do suggest if you want a, a guide for a hike, check out Take a Hike Southwest because he really did a great job. And he had, like, everything on him, like all these electrolytes packets my dad told me about later and all these little things to, like, help my dad, who was, like, it, it looked almost like he was, like, close to death at that point. So my brother and I get yeah. up the mountain. My parents eventually get up. My dad's, like, wobbling into, like, a hug with me. And he was like, Dan... As I was going back up the, the mountain, up those switchbacks, there were seven switchbacks left. And it felt like every single one of them, I was going up the seven rings of hell through each one of those switchbacks. So shout out All to right. Rob Ron Schneier. But they made it, man. They made it. And as I told them, this is how every hike goes, especially all the challenging ones I've done in my life. And they were kind of disappointed to hear this wasn't the most challenging hike of my life. I feel like I've done two or three that were more challenging, but it was good. It was challenging. It was definitely up there. But like I said, after every one of these, you feel so good when you're done. And for them, they have like this story they're going to tell all their friends and they're going to be relentless with this thing. Going to keep ripping it through, telling all their friends about this story. I know how they are. So in the end, I think it was a good thing. But that was my quick hiking story. Oh, in the West. Good old Ronnie Schneider. I thought you were going to tell the audience about our little golfing adventure at Pop Stroke, the mini golf place owned by Tiger Woods. 
Because of course you would want want them to talk about that. <laughs> I've never played mini golf at such a high level than that, that day. That not only did you play at a high level, um, that was a weird mini golf. It wasn't really mini golf. I would just consider that straight up putting. It was like there was no obstacles. There was no like fun instance. Just like here's a tee. I mean, here's a green, and some of these yeah. are harder than others. Putt. Get your shit down and putt. Um, <laughs> this is like, and I will say this, and this is important to note here, and I'm making this point. If you look at that scorecard, which I hope you kept, my average score after I got rid of that shitty, that shitty putter that was obviously way too big for me, was not as good. Was probably as good as yours, if not just as good as yours. And no, yeah, yeah, we'll take a look at that score. I had a ton of twos after that. I had a ton of twos after that. Ton of twos after that. I could have beat you and Diana in my sleep. No, you couldn't. No, it's, it's easily. Easily, but let's get to Giants talk. Easily. All right, let's talk some Giants. Let's see who's in the comments here. We got Monty. What's up, Monty? Good to see you here. Doug no, says, "Was the code five three Oh no, that wasn't the code, Doug. I think we went to a different hike. This one was um. Trying to remember the name of this hike. I, I Hermit's Trail. So all the way down into Hermit's Trail into one of the a waterfall. But I'm forgetting the name of the waterfall. So Hermit's Trail into a waterfall. Uh, Bill Hartnett, what's up, my man? Are you related at all to Brendan Hartnett? I doubt it, but he's my friend, and he has the same last name as you. Christian H says, what's up, Nick and Dan? How are you doing? Joey Bagel Betts, how are we doing? Mike, what's up, what's up? Um, excuse me, Crunch L. And Gerald Gamble, what's up, guys? How are you guys doing? So, Nick, we did enough of a preamble. Yeah, go ahead. You have something to say? No, no, I'm good. I'm ready to talk New York Giants. Like you're about to say something. You had your chest puffed out, and you're about. To, it looked like you're about to say something <laughs> there. I don't know what. Um, but enough preamble. Enough about the hiking. Enough about the trip. It's time to talk some Giants football. We want to get your guys' questions. The first time we're doing this, we're testing it out. We're doing it on YouTube live, live Q and A. Tell me what you guys are asking, Nick. Where do you want to start today? I think we could just start with the current state of the New York Giants right now, and this is an exciting time. We finally have seen what Joe Shane. Brian Dable and this new regime, now you could say new, into their second year, the type of team and the type of identity they're attempting to cultivate here. And it's an exciting situation, in my opinion. I think the Saquon Barkley whole uh, situation right now is definitely something that has not been resolved quite yet. It's a little bit nebulous. We'll have to wait and see. But adding Darren Waller, Paris Campbell, bringing back Darius Slayton, retaining Isaiah Hodgins on the offensive side of the football, as well as dropping, drafting John Michael Schmitz and Jalen Hyatt. I'm really excited about that. And then on the defense, just getting players like Deontay Banks and sharing up that run defense in terms of the interior defensive line and the linebacker, that was imperative towards success. I was discussing with um, someone on Twitter the the NFC East and if the Giants have closed the gap on the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, I wouldn't say they have closed the gap, but I think it's safe to say, and this is a good starting point, Dan, that they have narrowed the gap a little bit. The Philadelphia Eagles are still the top of the NFC right now. And that's the team that you got to knock off, not just because they won the NFC championship and they went to the Super Bowl and represented the NFC, but also of the system that they had and, and a lot of the players that they ended up retaining and then the excellent draft that they also had. And yes, they lost Miles Sanders and Isaac Ciamalo and a couple players here and there. But I do believe the Giants have narrowed that gap just because they really attacked the critical vulnerabilities that plagued them all throughout the 2022 season. Yeah, I think you did a good job of breaking that down. If I look at like what the Eagles did, because you know the Giants have improved, right? The Giants have made massive upgrades in the following areas. They have more defensive line depth. Look at that. Did you highlight that you highlighted that? How do you highlight a comment? I want to do that for some of these. I see that the one you highlighted, Nick has his, his uh, Pat Riley look working there. You do kind of look like Pat Riley with that. I, I, I honestly, I'm, I'm highlighting this because I have no idea what he's talking about. How do I look like Pat what? Riley? Do you know who Pat Riley is? The, the coach, the basketball coach? Yeah, the legend. How do I look like Pat Riley? <laughs> You look a lot. You have your Pat Riley look on today is what he's oh. saying. You have a Pat. So Pat Riley always did the gelled slick back hair. 
Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We're going back a be. while. What'd you say? We're going back a while with Pat Riley. Though? Uh, I think he's still, it's gray now and he doesn't have much left, but he just still, I think he still does the slick back with the gel. Okay. Maybe like coach Pat Riley. We're not talking about owner or whatever the hell he is. Pat Riley right yeah, now. Right? I think I'm thinking yeah. more about coach Pat Riley for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe a little Rick Patino action in there, but hopefully n- n- without any of the uh, accidents in the pants, but um, it's a shout out reference. Some people might get that, but anyway, back to the giants and the Eagles. Like if you look at it, I feel like there's a, Good case to be made. The Giants made a massive improvement on their defensive line depth with the signings of Ashawn Robinson and Nacho. And the flip side of that is the Eagles. And we always talk about the trenches. I would make the case, Nick, not for the future, but for now, they got worse. Like, Jahan, like we like Jalen Carter. We think he can be great. And we think he was one of the two clear best, like, blue chippers in this in this type of class, but which wasn't a good class to begin with. But I don't think he's going to have the same kind of impact as Hargrave in year one. I just don't see that happening, really. And... I don't feel like I feel like they will take a step back when it comes to interior pressure, despite Carter obviously being a really good prospect. So I think the Giants made some if you're looking like where did the Giants close the gap? Because you mentioned it, Nick, they didn't close it fully, but they started to close it with the Eagles. I would say defensive line is definitely a key area there. I would say even linebacker case can be made as well, Nick, because uh, Bobby Okereke to me is probably the best linebacker now on either team. You can make the case that the Eagles have some guys that you could that could maybe be in the conversation, but I think losing TJ Edwards for them was definitely a loss for them. I know he was more of a system player, people think. Obviously, he didn't get the market people thought he would get in free agency, and that could probably tell you that. But for that specific system that he was playing in with the Eagles, he was doing a really good job, and he was making an, imp- an impact on that team. So I think that's kind of where you know you would see the Giants closing the gap most, in my opinion, both uh, at linebacker and then more more importantly with their defensive line depth. And also just landing players that can really help each coordinator run their system. Because last year, and we even heard Joe Shane say this several times this offseason, I didn't really know who to add for Wink Martindale. I have a much better understanding on the type of players that they're looking for right now. So I think even drafting guys like Deontay Banks and players like that who can really slide in and fit what Wink Martindale wants for this system. I think that's a big deal. And uh, also, Rick Kramer, thank you so much. Best Giants pod in the game. And I want to tackle this question right here from Doug Analytics to start. And it is, if everyone is healthy, what's the split between 11 and 12 personnel? Last year was 65% and 18%. And I think that is a very good question because some of the personnel on the Giants right now, I think blur the lines between 12 and 11 personnel. Mainly Darren Waller, who if we're, you know, call a spade a spade right now, if you take Saquon Barkley out of the conversation, Darren Waller is your most exciting playmaker that you have on offense, right? So... I think you're going to see 12 personnel that operates as 11 personnel. I think you're going to see a lot of packages somewhat like that. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what split do you think will happen? One thing I will say before you get into that, Dan, I think it's going to just be a huge adjustment through the weeks. So let's start and focus early in on like week one and week two. Yeah, I think you you said it best. Like I have to pull up the giant schedule to get a good idea of when they'll use what, because as we saw last year, like that split 65 to 18, That was heavily, I don't have the exact splits in front of me. I'm sure Doug does, but that was heavily weighted toward the 12 personnel, I would assume, earlier in the season with those like Bears games and, 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 you know, the, even the the Panthers game they ran, it felt like a lot of 12 personnel and just had a lot of heavy personnel. And then the other side of it, the the 11 personnel was really heavy toward that Washington, Minnesota game toward the end of the season, the Colts game as well. Um, Even obviously the Detroit game, just because they fell behind so much against the Lions, they had to play catch up in, in, you know, the garbage time and play with a lot of 11 personnel. So I would say if you're asking what the split would be between the personnel, we probably should look at the schedule, Nick, and try to see what kind of uh, defenses are on the Giants schedule. So I'm going to pull that up 
Uh, and you can kind of answer what, if you think, uh, if you have any uh, opinions before looking at the schedule. I mean, just, I brought up the beginning of the schedule giants open with the Dallas Cowboys. And then you have the Arizona Cardinals. I'm hoping that you're going to see more 12 personnel against the Arizona Cardinals because the Giants will be just kind of running the football a lot in the second half and just trying to control the clock because they're going to beat them. Ideally, you would want that against the Cowboys, but I'm expecting a little bit more 11 personnel. I'm expecting to see three-by-one sets with Darren Waller as the backside X, Jalen Hyatt as the number three, similar to what Travis Kelsey and Tyree Kill were doing when Mike Kafka was the quarterback's coach over there in Kansas City. But in terms of splits, Doug, I don't necessarily have a percentage in mind right now. I think it's going to lean more towards 11, but I think they do like Daniel Bellinger. I think there's going to be a package where Daniel Bellinger is used kind of like 21 personnel, where he's a fullback. We saw that a lot down the stretch of the season last year against Indianapolis and Minnesota. We had the game, we had the play where Daniel Bellinger released out of the backfield, and I think he ended up fumbling the football against Minnesota. There was a couple plays where they used Daniel Bellinger in the backfield and just had him cut block three techniques like DeForest Buckner to spring runs and stuff like that. So I think you're going to see a package like that. That's one of the things I love most about this offensive approach, this offensive coaching staff, is they put these packages together. The pony package really helped the Giants win a playoff game. So I think you're going to see a lot of creativity in that way, but I don't really have necessarily a number that I would split it down like this and this. If I had to give you something, though, Doug, let's say... I think around uh, 20% 12 is, is what I would say. So just a slight uptick. Interesting. I actually think there'll probably be a downtick in, in 12 personnel this year. I feel like now it's the already numbers are already pretty low at 18%. Um, but I would say my guess would be that we go close to seven. The giants go close to 70% with 11 personnel. I mean, you can look at some of these matchups and think they might be a little more 12 heavy. I think the Cardinals was a good call by you. Like you play a team like the Seattle Seahawks, and I almost feel like to, to attack that style of defense, you want to play more 11 personnel and try to spread them out. Um, other teams that kind of come to mind like that are the Dolphins, who you might think, oh, the Giants are in this game. They want to play some 12. But I don't know that, you know, that 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 will be the case. And even the Cowboys game, I think about like the two times they played the Cowboys last year, Nick, when they were getting something going in that first game after really struggling for a while, they were in 11 personnel. I believe if I'm not mistaken, that Barkley touchdown run was out of 11 personnel and they kind of spread the field out a little more, gave him some space, took a couple defenders out of the box. So I think ultimately you'll get some 12 personnel, like you said, that's masqueraded as 12 personnel when it's not really like you'll have Darren Waller as the front side at, or, you know, the X on a, and a three by one and Daniel Bellinger's on the field. And that's technically 12 personnel, but is it really when Waller's operating as like an X receiver and he's even lined up as the X to me, that's more of like 11 personnel that's masqueraded as 12. So maybe percentage wise is it might be, it might be pretty close, but I think this is going to be a different style of offense. I also think just how the defense reacts to your 12 personnel package is going to dictate what the giants do. Yeah, because some defenses are going to be like they're in 12 personnel. Let's go out there with base. Some defenses are going to be like, and I would imagine most defenses are going to be like, let's go out there with our nickel package. Well, if your nickel package is weak and it's not, and you have those apex defenders, those overhang defenders aren't that great against the run. You can spread out your 12 personnel because you have Darren Waller and you have Daniel Bellinger and they can operate in space. They're athletic enough to do that and still run the football at a three by one or two by two sets, or you can condense it and make everything a little bit tight and attempt to run the football in that type of formation as well. So whatever the defense does based on what the Giants do when they employ their 12 personnel, I find to be fascinating game by game type of um, conversation. And I'm sure the Giants will also just change up their uh, approach based on what the defense is doing. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right, let's take a look at this next question. All right, it looks like I can't pick these questions. You got to get to uh, that. Yeah, that's, just read it and I'll pull it up. Uh, Chris Spires says, 
do you think it's a realistic expectation for Jones in year two of this offense? Or this might be a different one. I have one from up top, closer to 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 the top. I think from five ten, but it's fine. We can do that. He says, "Do you think it's realistic to have expectation for Jones uh, to have twenty five touchdowns plus in this offense?" Uh, so we're going with the twenty five touchdowns plus. Yeah, I think there is a world where Daniel Jones can throw for more than twenty five touchdowns in this offense. You've improved his weaponry. You have two very smart coaching staffs who know how to take advantage of what the defense is attempting to do. Now, will Daniel Jones? I don't know right now. I'm not going to say yes because I'm not 100% confident of that, but I think there's certainly a world where he can. Yeah, I think that's fair, Nick. I think he had 24 touchdowns during his rookie season, and I'm assuming Chris is just talking about passing touchdowns. He had 24 during his rookie season, hasn't eclipsed 15 in each of the last three seasons. Um but if he doesn't eclipse 25, I don't think I think Nick with the schedule being much more difficult this year, the Giants will not make the playoffs. The Giants will only make the playoffs if he's throwing for 25 or more touchdowns in a 17 game season because right like that's not even more than you know that's just above it's a touchdown and a half a game through the air that ha- that that has it's it's almost like a to me if they're not going if he's going to throw another 15 or so, they're not going to be able to get to the playoffs with this specific schedule. It would be difficult, yeah. You would need to have a lot of rushing touchdowns from Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones. And one thing I'll say too, man, is just the upgrade, and we've talked about this a lot, but the upgrade from this current coaching staff over the previous coaching staff in terms of how efficient they are in the red zone. And you add these weapons that we have been talking about, and that really starts to get me excited, dude. I really start to get excited when I start to think about Darren Waller in the role that Daniel Bellinger had, a rookie tight end who was a day three pick. Now you're inserting one of the top three threats in terms of being a receiving option at the tight end position into this offense. How are they going to utilize that in the red zone? I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Nice. Okay. We got one from Gabe Sylvester says, feel like we're much closer to the Cowboys now. I think I agree. The Giants have more narrowed that gap. And then James Busold, Jamie says, do the Giants have the best coaching staff in the NFC East? That's a good, that's difficult, but I'll say this, right? Eagles lost their offensive and their defensive coordinator. You still have your head coach and Nick Sirianni, who is beloved by New York Giant fans. I would say Washington's coaching staff, if they don't perform this year, they could be out of a job. And Mike McCarthy just got rid of his offensive coordinator. So I think there is a real legitimate argument that the Giants have the best coaching staff in this division. And that's I I think a lot of it is is a little bit unproven because we don't know what those replacements for Jonathan Gannon and Shane Steichen are going to do. But the Giants retained both of their coordinators, and both of those coordinators exceeded expectations last year. So, yeah, I, I would say there's definitely a chance. I would say without a doubt the Giants are the best coaching staff in the NFC East. And to me, it's not really particularly close. I think last year, even if we're just going back to last year where the Eagles still had those coordinators and the Cowboys still had Kellen Moore, who both Nick and I personally believe gave them a much better chance to win than uh, Schottenheimer and McCarthy this year for the Cowboys offense. Even going back to last year, I think the Giants had the best coaching staff in the NFC East. I think they gave them the best possible advantage from a roster to coaching standpoint, translated over two wins over any of these guys. Like the Eagles, they won a lot of games with that coaching staff, but I don't know, man. I watched some of those Eagles games and it felt like they were just running the same stuff over and over on offense. And you just can't stop it really because they have a dominant offensive line, a dominant co- uh, quarterback who's playing at a high level, unbelievable receivers and tight end. And that's kind of just hard to stop. Like there's no real, and the Giants, for example, didn't have an answer. And the Eagles ran almost nothing against them in that uh, divisional uh, playoff game. They really just, just ran the same stuff almost over and over. It felt like, so 
I would say last year, the Giants had the biggest coaching edge by far in the NFC. And then we looked to this year and things just got worse for the Giants opponents. I think that the Cowboys are a much worse coach team without Kellen Moore. I'm standing by that. I know Cowboys fans have come at me for that, Nick. People are saying, you know, Kellen Moore this, Kellen Moore that. He's good on paper, but he's not good in reality. Cowboys fans complaining. You know, a lot of those complaints could just be <laughs> veiled complaints about the quarterback play, right? Or veiled complaints about the wide receiver play or the offensive line play, other things that go into a disappointing or what they would consider a disappointing season in Dallas. And then you look at the Eagles. You mentioned it, Nick. They lost both their coordinators. I don't see how that could make them. I don't, like you said, it's an unknown. Like maybe you could hit lightning in a bottle and find like the best coordinators in the NFL out of nowhere. But it's very hard for me to believe that, that they're going to have a better advantage than Kafka and Wink Martindale give the Giants this year. And then finally, Washington. I know he was better last year, Del Rio, but I still think there's a implosion upside for, you know, implosion <laughs> possibility for Del Rio. If you look back at his 2021 defense, that was unbelievable. It was, there was some stupid errors going on there. And it was like borderline uh, what you saw with Minnesota and Green Bay last year from a coordination standpoint of defense. And then like on offense, like I didn't think it was a net positive for them to get rid of Scott Turner. I know everyone kind of felt like Turner had been become the scapegoat there. But like, is he really the reason Washington wasn't moving the football or was it because they had no quarterback play? Like to me, it's probably the quarterback play. So I, I feel pretty confident the Giants will have a coaching edge in every game in the NFC East. I would hope and bringing Eric B that's something that we'll see if there's a lot of like a huge chief influence with Washington's offense, but big difference. There's no Pat Mahomes there. Okay. You're yeah. operating with, with Sam. Howe. we got and a I question. We called the plays, right? Yeah. Yeah. Eric, uh, yeah. Andy reads the play caller. Max Dubois asks, do we think Waller is going to get 100 plus targets? Those 19 and 20 all pro caliber seasons for him, 2019, 2020, had a lot to do with Carr slinging it 40 plus times a game. Wonder if he has the same level of involvement. Now, Dan, my opinion on this is I don't know if he would say he's healthy and everything, right? I don't know in this offense if he'll get over 100 targets. There's a lot of mouths to feed in this offense. And I think early in games, if Darren Waller is feasting, defenses are going to do everything in their power to shift coverage towards him, which is going to open up opportunities for Wondell Robinson underneath, for Isaiah Hodgins in the intermediate or underneath or deep, wherever he really wants to be effective, Saquon Barkley in the rushing attack. And I think this coaching staff, unless Waller is just cooking to a point where he is beating double coverage and everything like that, but I think this coaching staff is too smart to force feed a player when there's just a bunch of coverage rolling towards him. And I think the Giants have enough weapons to make defenses pay that they will adjust and they will start attacking the areas of the field that the defense aren't paying attention to, which would just basically make Darren Waller somebody who is occupying coverage, which is still a huge part of the NFL. That's my opinion on it. I think that's a really good opinion. It could be, you know, we discussed in the past. I don't know if we've discussed it recently. We discussed in the past, like the impact Jalen Hyatt could make on the Giants in year one if he's able to get up to speed fast and play a certain snap percentage that we're hoping he can play. Nick could be not in the box score. It could just be simply in what he opens up for the other players. And, I, and Darren Waller could do the exact same. If I had to guess right now, 100 targets over a 17 game season seems pretty realistic to me, but I would guess and lean toward betting that Waller's impact will come more in the yards per catch range and the big plays that Dable and Kafka have dialed up for him to be isolated in the matchups they like. And those matchups may only come two, three times a game and they may only connect Jones and Waller on one to two, one to two of those two, three times a game, but those will be huge plays. And then also in the red zone, that's where I really think giants fans will immediately see the impact of Darren Waller in the red zone. We saw last season, Mike Kafka and Brian Dable did a really, really, really good job of designing a red zone offense that was effective and scored a lot of points per trip. 
Daniel Jones, his numbers in the red zone went from, he went from being one of the worst quarterbacks statistically on a, on a, I guess, efficiency based in the red zone over his first three years to a hyper-efficient red zone quarterback. And a lot of that, in my opinion, was scheme and design. I'm not saying that to knock Jones. I'm saying that because if you look back at the games, the film or the regular broadcast angle, you'll see how many of those touchdowns were bootlegs or design rollouts or little, you know, dump offs that got the ball to Bellinger out in space, like the Carolina game where he took it 20 yards into the end zone, the free touchdown from Myrick, things of that nature. Um, And, that will evolve, but I think having a weapon like Darren Waller for Dable and Kafka makes such a difference in the red zone, and you can have those designs for him. Or like you said, Nick, you can have a play that looks like it's designed to go to Waller, and instead it opens up the backside for Daniel Bellinger to be leaking wide open. Exactly. And now we have this other question from Crunch L. Do you think we've closed the gap with Dallas? This is something that Dan and I have touched on, I think, in recent podcasts. Yes, I think the Giants have closed the gap on the Dallas Cowboys. I don't know if it's completely closed, but I think they are so much closer right now that the Giants should win against them at home. And I know Dan Quinn is an excellent defensive coordinator. They have a very dangerous defense. Protecting Daniel Jones is going to be imperative in those matchups. But I think the Giants are talented enough to where they should steal one game from Dallas. They shouldn't be swept by this team every damn season. No, I would agree with you, Nick. And I think even you look at last year where you could make the case the Giants were, I don't want to say like, I feel like the Giants are a better team this year, at least on paper, Nick. And we we can't get too crazy with that because we thought they were a good team on paper uh, in 22 years ago during that Galladay spree with the with the, all the players they brought in then. But they're a better team on paper, and they do have we do we do have a certain level of trust in the coaching to carry that over. Then I think the Cowboys kind of are this year versus last year. I know the Cowboys added Brandon Cooks, who in my opinion will be a massive upgrade that no one's talking about. I still think he can play football really well. He's going to be a matchup nightmare for the Giants in my mind. They're going to have to put probably a Dory on him and hope that he's fast enough to keep up with him. And obviously they made a big play to get to improve their interior defensive line, which was a major issue for them last year. But on paper, at least Nick, to me, when you factor in the coaching edge, the Giants have the the Giants can be argued to be just as good a team as the Cowboys in my mind because they have clear advantages at on certain areas of the roster, coaching mostly, in my opinion. And I'm not so sure at this point, like Dak Prescott is playing at so much higher of a level than Daniel Jones. I think he's playing, I think the case could be made that he may be playing at a higher level, at least from a processing standpoint, from a pure passing standpoint, but he doesn't offer what Jones offers as a runner, and that needs to be factored in. And even just the simple things like extending those third downs with his legs that Jones does to keep drives alive. You're not seeing that as much from Dak Prescott after the ankle surgery. So to me, like, even if you want to say like, Oh, that's crazy to say that Daniel Jones is in the conversation with Dak Prescott. Now I know no one listening would say that, but if you say that to like non giants fans, they would, they would call you crazy. I mean, people think on, on my at CBS, Nick, people think I'm like the Daniel Jones super fan and the biggest home. That's what he said to me today. Like I'm not a Daniel Jones super fan. How, how could that like, what are you talking about? But, um, I think a fair case can be made that that gap has been closed between Jones and, and, and Dak, especially considering what Jones does with his legs. So I don't really no longer feel like, oh, my God, we're at such a disadvantage at quarterback. We should never expect to win these games. The Giants, that is. I think you're right. They should they should be looking to split the series. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Best hope so if they're going to make the playoffs, man. Darius Smith asks, Dan and Nick, what are your expectations for Jalen Hyatt in his rookie year? I see him as a leading candidate for Offensive Rookie of the Year along with JSN. I would love for Jalen Hyatt to be the Offensive Rookie of the Year. I'm not quite there, Darius, I'm going to be honest. But if he really takes to the coaching and the development and the Giants hit on a couple explosive plays that lead them to winning some of these really close games against some of these top teams, and yes, he could be in the conversation. I don't think it's going to be a slow a, a slow development process for Jalen Hyatt, but I just think there are tons of mouths to feed and, and only a certain amount of snaps to go around the wide receiver room. I don't know how many snaps a game Jalen Hyatt is going to play. So I think that's probably the first direction we could take this, Dan. What do you think his snap percentage is going to be? Um, Well, I think it's going to grow. And so it's going to be a lot different in the second half of the season, the first half of the season. But if I had to guess, Nick, I'd probably say sub, definitely sub 60% overall. That includes the early season where I think it's going to be sub forty percent, um, and then I would I would I would think maybe it, it, slightly over fifty percent, but I'm not even sold on that, which would make it really difficult for him to win offensive rookie of the year. Darius, look, the fact of the matter is the Giants have a lot of options at receiver and tight end. It's not like the Jalen Hyatt in in theory Jalen Hyatt's joining a situation that's great for him because the Giants don't have a true number one, but. He's also not joining the best situation for playing time immediately. There are some teams, like if he goes to the Texans, like you can make a case that Jalen Hyatt might play 95% of the snaps this year, but that's not going to happen on a team. Like you said, that has Wondell Robinson, Darren Waller, Daniel Bellinger, Sterling Shepard, maybe Isaiah Hodgins, who they re-signed. They really like that's five already. Darius Slayton, six. We're talking about six players and you can at most get basically four on the field at once. Sometimes you can get five, but for the most part, you're getting four on the field at once. And that's not even mentioning some other players who people think might work their way into the mix. Paris Campbell, who they signed for a one-year $2.5 million contract, and he does different things than Jalen Hyatt. And that's kind of the basic you know, thought, I think, Nick, with this entire receiver core. They all do different things, with the exception of kind of like Crowder, Shepard, Wandell, who can kind of be grouped in together, though I think even they do different things and are different players. With the exception of those three, and who knows if Crowder will make the roster, but these guys do different things. So I don't think there's going to be a real opportunity, in my opinion, for Hyatt to see 100% of the snaps. But I wanted to ask you, Nick, a question from our friend Monty, because it's related to this one. I saw it uh, a little further up the comments, and he says, the Giants were reportedly giving their wide receivers option routes last training camp. Do you think that's something they use with Hyatt this year, who did a lot of that at Tennessee? So I have this, uh, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory or whatnot, but do you remember the Patriots game? Last offseason, they ran a play. It was a double China concept, which is two. It's a three by one set. 
two in routes, and then the number three receiver on the front side of the play runs a flag. Saquon Barkley released to the flat, to the one receiver side. That one receiver just runs a streak inward angled to take the safety out of that portion of the field. And then Saquon Barkley in the Patriots game in the preseason ran a choice route where he could sit, he can go over the middle of the field, or he could take it vertical. And I believe in that game, he went over the middle of the field, caught the football, and it was like a solid game. Week one, Daniel Jones in the red zone. The Giants run that same exact concept from a three-by-one set. Saquon Barkley gets isolated against Amani Hooker in the flat. Saquon Barkley does a little stutter step, and then he decides to take it to the back pylon. And Daniel Jones, it was like it was like when you play Madden and you accidentally press B lightly instead of like bulleting it, and he just lofted it up in the air, and it was intercepted. And we're all like, what the hell happened? And I was always curious, and I have not had this proven or anything, but I didn't see that route again for the rest of the season. I was always curious if that like put a damper on some of the choice type of routes, specifically with the running backs out of the backfield in terms of them going vertical. So that was one thing, Monty and Dan, that I was always like, I saw that in the preseason and it worked. And now they're trying in the regular season and it was catastrophic and almost lost the Giants the game, a game where they were down like 13, nothing or something. And then they're battling back and then you turn the football over while you're battling back. Still, you find a way to win the football game, regardless of the fact. Yeah. I think you're going to have some choice type of routes for Jalen Hyatt. I mean, every offense has certain choice routes. Like, is the safety in the middle of the field? Is he coming down? Is he dropping to depth? What is he doing? Whatever he is doing, you do the opposite. Like, those are built into a lot of different offenses. That's going to be here. But in terms of the stuff I was talking about with Saquon Barkley and going deep and stuff like that, I'm not 100% sure. And that doesn't really pertain to Jalen Hyatt. It's an interesting uh, discussion, though, because I think that was the one time, at least publicly, Nick, that we saw Brian Dable most frustrated with Daniel Jones, the quarterback on that play. Um, and that that was something, you know, he, he chewed into him on the sideline after that throw. And so I wonder if it's if it's something that they feel like maybe in year two. Better, better idea of what the offense, what the expectations are in the offense, better idea of the progressions. So they're going to be running, in my opinion, they're going to be running a lot of the same stuff, at least the beginning of the season. I don't expect to see a completely different offense right away. I think it's going to be a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it start to the season. And we'll see if they can get through that part of that schedule, like with, with the same type of stuff on offense. We'll, we'll, we'll see like the teams obviously are going to be studying that tape, but I would, I would think that maybe in year two, we see, we see more of an involvement in the vertical passing game from the running backs, but I would bet. Nick, that it's probably Eric Gray who we see make those plays other other than uh, rather than Saquon Barkley. That's interesting. See, you think Eric Gray, you think that would happen as the season progresses a little bit? He'll yeah. his involvement is going to be a little bit more. And that's irrespective of the fact of Saquon Barkley is signed or he's on the tag. Assuming he's signed or on the tag. Yeah. I'm assuming if he's there. Yeah. Which I which I think will happen with Saquon. Okay, let's let's add this question from Darius Smith and think long term. Do you expect rookies to be all pro players? So any of the rookies that the Giants drafted, Deontay Banks, John Michael Schmitz, Jalen Hyatt, Eric Gray. Do you think any of those guys have the chance to be all pro players? Uh, like as a rookie? Or no, just- no. I'm going to say like projecting forward a little bit. I think Darius Banks for sure has a chance to be an all pro player uh, projecting forward. I mean... <laughs> I'm sorry, not Darius Banks. I was looking at Darius. Deontay Banks. Just looking at Darius's comment. Um, Deontay Banks, I think, for sure has the potential to be it. And I think it will be more of like an AP writers recognize how good he is type of thing rather than like he stuffs the box score with interceptions because I don't think he's going to be that kind of player. But when you have the athletic profile that, that Deontay Banks has, 
combined with already flashes of really good man coverage. There, obviously, there's things he needs to work on. He's grabby. He's not great to catch one, but these are things that can be worked on. But there are flashes of him. You could see it in the Ohio State game from last season where he had some really good matchups against Marvin Harrison Jr., who's like immediately going to be one of the top ten receivers in the NFL, if not top five. The minute, like the it's it's Jamar Chase, but better the minute he hits the NFL. You look at that and you're like, there are flashes there. And then with that athletic profile, especially the two most important traits in my mind for athlete, for the cornerback, which is the 40-yard dash and the 10-yard split, which shows, A, the ability to break on the football, and then, B, the ability to recover, in addition to the explosiveness, which is important as well, and the vertical leaping. Like, you got to try to win the catch point. These are areas he can get better at. He tests better than he shows right now. But put all those things together, and, like, with the right coaching, we have and the Giants have good coaching in place with Henderson – I can see him them molding him into, you know, the next Marlon Humphrey type player that maybe Marlon Humphrey doesn't get all pro every year, but a case can be made that he deserves it every year when you just look at the pure coverage snaps that he's that he's putting out on the field and putting on tape. So that would be my pick. I would say that if I had to bet any other player, it would be Jalen Hyatt. But uh, actually, I'd probably have to bet John Michael Schmitz, I guess, because there's so many good receivers in the NFL. I feel like it's hard to see Hyatt getting one of those all pro nods, Nick, but I guess John Michael Schmitz potentially could get it. Yeah. He's one of 32, right? We got a question from Bill Hartnett. Everyone asks Hyatt about his route running. Cause that seemed to be a big knock on him in the draft. Does anyone think Dable or Kafka are not going? Well, Dable and Kafka, can they teach him how to run routes? I think is uh, what that's what's what he's getting at. So, we heard Brian Dable after the draft say that he liked Jalen Hyatt in part because of some of the routes that he ran in Josh Heupel's offense. And a lot of those were just vertical routes, curls, which I'm assuming is not what Brian Dable was necessarily alluding to, but those deep over routes, those deep search routes where you just run over the middle of the field and you find space. And I think that's going to be a big part of what he does off play action to add an explosive element and to open up routes underneath for Ronda Robinson and whoever else. So in terms of route running, I think Mike Grow will have, I don't want to say his hands full, but I think he's going to teach Jalen Hyatt how to run routes. And I also think it's not like Jalen Hyatt doesn't have the movement skills to run routes. He does. It's just you didn't see it on tape because the offense that he played in didn't necessarily require him to run the routes. That's more of the issue. It's just not on tape. But I think he has the body control and all of the traits that would suggest that he can run routes. I agree with you. And I don't think necessarily just because we didn't see it on film doesn't mean it's not going to happen. The reason Nick and I were skeptical of Jalen Hyatt at 25 and in general were skeptical of his overall draft profile before the draft when he was being discussed to the Giants at 25 is because of the unknown and the uncertainty. It's not because we said, oh, he can't do this thing. It's because we don't know. And when you don't know, there's obviously more risk in that profile. But I really like how you mentioned those deep overs and those search routes because I even think about earlier in the season, like we just talked about how different the Giants offense was throughout the season, Nick. And, you know, early on we had that Bears game and, and there was a lot of 12 personnel. The Giants didn't really throw the ball. But if you think back to like the way, way early parts of the season, like their first few home games when David Sills was on the field, Gary Stoney was on the field, there were some deep overs mixed in there. And there that was, you know, a couple of those offensive pass interference where guys crossing on the deep plane and inter deep intermediate plane there. Um, the right side was cheeks, man. I guess he's talking about the Giants offensive line here. Yeah. But and so that to me is like the Giants showed early in the season, Nick, that they want to run that style of offense. It's a lot of what the what Brian Dable had success with Josh Allen doing in uh, with doing in Buffalo. And then maybe they just were like, we can't do it with this current personnel grouping. And then you saw it pop up again occasionally with Darius Slayton, but not often with anyone else. Now that they have Hyatt in the mix, they may feel like this was the perfect guy to get so I can get back to what I want to do, which is some of those deep overs, those search routes, find space in the intermediate area and let Jones rip the ball in there.
Also think about the context of what was happening last year at the wide receiver position for the Giants. In training camp, they're like, yo, we have someone in Colin Johnson who we really like. Uh, he's done. Torn Achilles. Sterling Shepard, he's playing tore his knee up a little bit, right? You had a bunch of players who the Giants were relying on, but they all ended up getting injured. Wanda Robinson started the season injured, came back, ended up getting injured. So there was just turmoil among that position group. And the Giants really addressed it by just adding a bunch of players. Like, I don't know how many wide receivers the Giants are going to carry after training camp. Like, are they going to have like seven, eight wide receivers? Is Jeff Smith a player who's technically a wide receiver, but the Giants supposedly brought him in to be a special teamer. Is he going to make this team? There's just a lot of bodies there at that position. And, you know, injuries happen and everything. But if if the Giants can get some luck with the injury bug early on in the season, they're going to be able to really employ whatever type of personnel they want, whether it be 11 or 12, in terms of the players that they're putting on the football field, who all can handle different roles, I would say pretty adequately. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the wide receiver room, even though there's not really a top dog there. That's fair. I think we missed one earlier that was interesting from Mike at 517. So I'm going to try to get this now. I don't know if I can get it up, but we'll, I'll just read it out here. He says, because as I think some Giants fans are, are considering this, Nick, though, I know where we'll stand on this. And you found it. Do you think that if Daniel Jones regresses in a major way, do Shane, do Shane and Dable get fired? Because the Giants have actually, with these last two coaches, fired them after two years, which is crazy. Um, if Dave's makes it through this year, which again, we'll answer in a second. But It'll be the first coach in a while who made it through three. Um, he says, I, I think it would be a terrible decision by ownership if that happens. I don't think there's a chance Brian Dable or Joe Shane get fired this season. I think the Giants can get defeated and they're still going to find a way to retain their job at their exceeding expectations last year. So, yeah, I don't think they're going to be fired. I'm with Nick here. I don't think there's I think it's an like under one percent chance they get fired. They would have to be. First of all, the fans would have to turn on both of them. That's the first and most important thing, and I don't think that's happening. But say the Giants do win four games only and Daniel Jones regresses in a major way, however that may be. Like, I, like the reason I don't think it's going to happen, Mike is be, and Nick, is because I just think in this offense, it's so hard for me to see a quarterback not having success. It's just so quarterback-friendly to me. Like, doing watching some of the things the Giants did last year to make uh, Daniel Jones' life easy, in my opinion, from a schematic standpoint – was was incredibly impressive unless playoff piece says unless they do a joe judge rant yeah that is true joe judge's weird rant at the end of the season and i will say this shout out to my brother matt schneier because after that week two game against washington where the giants had that missed field goal dexter lawrence lining up in the whatever my brother did say and i was with him at the time but he was way more passionate about it and his rant was joe judge needs to be fired now this guy's a loser and we're not going to <laughs> and it was a drunken rant that ended up being entirely correct and that was only like two weeks after the fan or three weeks three four weeks after the fans uh did laps for him in the parking lot because he won three games down the stretch of a lost 2022 season against like brandon allen playing quarterback for the Bengals. whoever the hell was it brandon allen who played quarterback that game where the giants won like 1917 or whatever in judges first i believe season. so yeah yeah just an embarrassing game to get excited about but we're past that we have good times now ahead giants are in good spot with the coaching and management Okay, let's do the next one, Nick. All right, let's find one up here. Question from the good listeners of the Big Blue Banter podcast. A lot of, a lot of comments. You know what? There's a lot of Evan Neal talk in here. So let's okay. just discuss Evan Neal just because I want to be on the same page with the chat. And I, we've said this a lot, Dan, throughout the year. Like This is a very conscientious person. He's going to put the work in. There's a lot of videos coming out of him putting a lot of work into his craft. And I trust his personality to strive to get better but are we confident that he is going to take 
maybe not an Andrew Thomas type of year two leap, but some sort of leap. I'm not going to say I'm confident just because we haven't seen it, but I'm cautiously expecting it. I think that somebody with that type of pedigree coming from IMG Academy playing at Alabama and the fact that he moved around, played three positions throughout college, and now he can just focus on being the right tackle. I think there's a lot of merit to suggest that he's going to be okay in the long run. And I think somebody brought this up in the comments, and I'm not sure who, and I think it's a really good point. It's something that we don't discuss enough. I do think it will improve for Evan Neal whenever the Giants figure out a solution for the right guard, because I like Mark Lewinsky as a run blocker but he had issues in pass protection, specifically whenever a defensive player was able to get to his half man and work one of his shoulders, whether it be inside or outside. And I just think the right side of the line had a lot of issues last year. I'm expecting Neil to get better, but man, if he doesn't, what's the conversation going to be? Yeah. And the giants, if he just to answer that backhand part first, if he doesn't, the giants are not in, are in a really interesting spot because they did not invest in a swing tackle in this class. Matt Parrott is coming back. Believe it believe to be coming back but i think to me he is definitely a sleeper candidate to be cut on uh, at the end of the, at the end of uh august if they don't like that this is not that they didn't pick him this current regime so um just to keep in mind that the, the swing tackle situation isn't great i would say that i'm a little above the cautious optimism when it comes to neil i'm like like very cautiously optimistic that he's going to be better i think for me what it comes down to is i really do believe what John Schmelk told us something when we, when we had that, when we had him on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that, you know, Howard Cross, who, who's been played the game for, you know, however long he played the game for, for the giants or over a decade of football in the trenches as a true wide tight end. Like that wasn't no like Darren wall or whatever. Like this dude was <laughs> taking on defensive ends every single yeah. snap. And this was like back in the day when NFL defensive ends were like 275 or above, there were no, like, you know, Nolan Smith's on the field at 240. Like this was you had to just battle in the trenches. And he's like, I'm on the sideline every single home game, and I see Evan Neal is not healthy. He's just simply not healthy in his lower half. He says specifically. And if you have an, if you're not like, if you're playing through a bad lower half, if you're playing through an injury and you you can't get your lower half to fire off the way you want it to, of course you can be bad. And like you said, Nick, he's already proven he's a good he's a good kid. And I think somebody says it right now, but he has proven that he's working his ass off. Like he's getting individual training. And I actually heard an interview recently um shout out to i think she pronounces her name adriana though i think it reads adriana adriana i forget her last name i think it's lafoe you guys should probably follow her on twitter she did an interview with bobby johnson the giants offensive line coach and i and he didn't really get into he can't go into too many details as far as the injuries go though he did say something very very interesting um when it comes to the injuries in the giants run he said everyone is progressing ahead of schedule so Neil would probably be included that, but he didn't give anything specific on Neil's injury, but he, he did kind of mention like this. He did almost confirm like this dude is, was playing through an injury last year. And he also loved, he specifically said, and I thought this was interesting, Nick. Um, yeah. Adriana LaFala. Thank you, Darius. He, he thought this was interesting. He said that I'm trying to remember it now. What did he say that about, about Neil that I, that I found? Uh, was oh he liked how Neil was searching out and seeking out individuals to help him during the offseason. Like that's something you hear over time. Like Nick, I know you've heard this before because I've heard this before. Like oh, offensive line coaches don't want guys going to train with anyone else. They want them to only you know practice what they're teaching and they don't want them to get mixed up. But Bobby Johnson kind of said the opposite. He's like I he's seeking out the best people to work with in the offseason and and he viewed that as a good thing. And I view that as a good thing for Neil as well. It's an excellent thing for Neil. And I like what Bradley Meeking says here. Is Evan Neal the most critical player who needs to improve for the Giants to become better than last year? If not, who? I think this is a very good question. And I would have to say, 
if I had to choose, it would be Evan Neal. Although Kayvon, he also lists, I think Kayvon Thibodeau needs to take a step forward as well. I think we can say we were comfortable with what we saw from Kayvon Thibodeau in year one, but there's still more that I want to see from a top five overall edge rusher. And especially when it's, you got to have it type downs, man. Like it's you against the tackle, tackle against you, defeat that guy in this one-on-one situation and get your defense off the field. I want to see Kayvon Thibodeau rise through those occasions. But if I had to pick one player, it's Evan Neal, man. Evan Neal, if you can just be a solid right tackle for the New York Giants, I think that would mitigate a lot of the issues the offense had last year. Great question, Bradley. And I think you probably put together the two most important players there in Evan Neal and Kayvon Thibodeau. Evan Neal would get the lean for me as well as Nick. I will say a few other names to consider as what which players can improve the most for the Giants to win more games than they won last season. This is not a player that can improve the most, but I think if he comes out firing and plays great, Deontay Banks, the Giants could be really cooking. They could be a completely different team on the defense side of the ball. And as far as players who come back who can make a massive difference by making a major improvement, Daniel Jones is probably still number one for me over, over Evan Neal and over Kayvon Thibodeau. If Daniel Jones starts cooking in this offense and starts ripping those whole shots and starts making those throws that are available down the field every time they're available, which is possible, right? Like year two, he could just, it could, you, he could pick up this offense in a way no one's expecting to based on last year's film. We already saw him improve from a processing standpoint basically across the entire season to the point where at the end of the season, they were running the offense through Jones for the first time all year with that, you know, shotgun 11 personnel spreading the field. Yes, it was mostly quick game, but he took his shots. The Vikings game, he had a vertical shot to Richie James and he had a vertical shot to Isaiah Hodgins. We saw the progression with Daniel Jones as a passer last year. If he takes another huge leap as a passer, that's going to be even more important than anything Evan Neal can do for them. Anything Kayvon Thibodeau can do for them. Anything Dante Banks, Midori Jackson, all those guys combined, it's more important then. If you get start to get elite-level passing play from your quarterback and somebody who sees the whole shots and rips the whole shots, anticipatory throwing, consistent anticipatory throwing, consistent ball placement, taking shots downfield and hitting shots downfield, that's going to matter all the more than anything else. Because I got to be honest with you, a lot of what I see Joe Burrow and all the guys, you, who, whoever you think is the best quarterback, Mahomes, Burrow, a lot of what I see from them is the ball's out in two seconds. The offensive line didn't play much of a role on that snap. What played a role was the quarterback's anticipation, throwing it into spots, being on the same page as the receiver, not throwing it to the receiver, but throwing it into open space, and velocity on the throw, ball placement on the throw, touch on the throw, whatever you want to say. But a lot of those great plays that I watch in the NFL aren't plays where the offensive line is blocking for eight seconds, the quarterback sitting, 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 and then throwing. It's the ball's out in two seconds. So that's what's important. Get the ball to the right spot. So to me, it still is Daniel Jones. You nailed it. I think you're spot on. If Daniel Jones takes a step from a improving young quarterback that we saw last year that a lot of people wrote off to, hey, this guy could be in Pro Bowl conversation, and it is the NFC. That's definitely a possibility. I think that you're talking about a playoff team in the NFC, and you're talking about just the limits that we didn't necessarily expect, even right now, maybe, if he takes that substantial step forward. And there's nothing really saying that he he can't or suggesting that he can't. The things that we talk about, the anticipatory throwing, we haven't necessarily seen a long track record of that on film, but is it plausible that he can take that now second year in the system? Maybe. Do the upgrades help him? Certainly. Does Aaron Waller, Paris Campbell, bring him back Darius Lee? All of those help Daniel Jones. Now it's just time for Daniel Jones to kind of put all of that together. But we also know this schedule is going to be a little bit more difficult than a lot of the teams that he played last year. So you got to seize the moments when they do arise. I want to get an interesting question in here. It's a, it's a bit up at 522 from Karu, uh, Karu Kopar. Uh, Ko, 
Cope Car, I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Uh, Car, if it's Charles, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, my bad on that front. You know I'm bad with pronunciations. But I like this question a lot, so I want to feature it. And he says, what do you guys believe would be our best possible, highest upside offensive line combination? Okay, best possible, highest upside. So with this question, we are expecting that some of the guys who have not put the tape out there yet, they have developed. So we're talking about Neil Thomas. Those are your tackles. Center, John Michael Schmitz. So now what are those two guard positions? For me, if we're talking about the highest upside, would it be the two UNC guys, Azudu and McKethan? And I know the McKethan one is really odd just because he tore his ACL last year. You don't really know. But somebody who moves that well, being at that size, that's something that really entices me. But I think the safe answer would probably just be Azudu and Bredis and Glowinski. You're more than likely going to be cut after this season. That's probably where I am at. But man, but do you also feel that way? Not for after the season, for this season regarding the right guard position. So you're talking? No, yeah, no. For this season, you're talking okay. about highest upside. Then yes, I do. But I don't know if that's the best, most pragmatic course of action. Just because you can't always bank everything on upside. Yeah, I think you know that. Like this is an interesting question because the best starting offensive line is it also the same as the highest upside offensive line? Like, do you want to get somebody like Azudu and McKethan on the field at the same time, or Azudu and you know whoever Br- Bredesen on the field at the same time? If they're making mistakes that you might Klowinski might not make, that's the big question because sometimes a lot of people when they evaluate offensive line play, Nick, I know you've heard this line a million times from people who talk about football is it's not about the best players it's about the worst players like that's what really matters like is somebody dragging down your offensive line and 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 you know the weak link is is a big factor when it comes to offensive line play so there could be bad, really bad reps that hurt the giants but i'm really happy you brought up mckethan because mckethan is not discussed a lot and i've been thinking a lot about the giants offensive line and like what the best possible combination is and i'm kind of intrigued by mckethan and, and thank you big dash <laughs> you literally said it exactly as i said it but mckethan mckethan is very intriguing to me as well and, and dkit brings it up six seven and i think he's a little under six seven let's just say six six and a half three thirty five and to move the way that he moves that's very intriguing. And you know, Joe Shane has already made it clear when it comes to uh, the trench play, he believes big time in length and size. And I get it. It's planet theory, right? Like you want the ability to knock back. That's key. That's really important. And so I'm actually, I'm actually thinking like if McKethan hadn't got hurt last year, Nick, we would have seen him on the field at some point, likely at left guard, obviously, because right guard was, was kind of Glowinski's job all year. He didn't really suffer many injuries there center. I don't really see McKethan playing, but Maybe and, and and you know it's weird. We're probably unlikely, but but maybe uh left ta- or right tackle could have been an option. I doubt it. But either way, like look at this, Nick. Good job bringing up his mock draftable spider chart. Like this is elite level traits: bench press, height, weight, wingspan, arm length. These are all like and hand size. This is all as good as it gets from McKethan. Um, so you know I I am very intrigued by what what he can do as well in year two under Bobby uh, under Bobby Johnson. Same same. I'm a I'm a fan of. Like, I don't want to say I was a huge fan of his tape, but look, he's really big. He can move really well. I liked Josh Azudu a lot better. And let's call spade a spade. Josh Azudu struggled a little bit in year one, but some of Josh Azudu's best tape was, I would say, if he can play like that 95% of the time, then that has to be a starter on your offensive line. But Kevin, it's just towards ACL last year and the blue white scrimmage. So what are you really expecting of them? But if we're talking about best outcomes, yeah, I think having both those guys develop and landing them where you did in the draft would be excellent for Joe Shane and the giants moving forward. Monty says Stoutland is the Eagles best coach. He is correct. Jeff Stoutland, Eagles offensive line coach. I would agree. Literally their best coach. I include whatever uh, Sirianni in that as well. (laughs) I think the Eagles are a worse team if they lose Stoutland instead of uh, Sirianni. Um, 
see what else got we a, got here. We got a question from Bryce Cresswell. This is a little bit out there a little bit. What do you guys think will happen with Khalil Pimpleton, who the Giants claimed off of the Lions practice squad, I believe it was, drafted as a top punt returner, yet hasn't been used? Is it a need for dual roles? I just think the wide receiver room is, is pretty filled up right now. I don't think there's going to be room for a player like Khalil Pimpleton to make the roster. I know Eric Gray didn't return a lot of punts in college, and I think he muffed like two of them when he did, but... If he's going to make this team, which he's likely going to, he's a fifth round pick. I think he'll have a role on the offense, but if he, I'm sure the giants will at least explore his ability to be a punt returner to see if he can catch and be relied on because this wide receiver room, Bryce and everybody it's, it's full. Who else on this team other than Jamison Crowder, who might not make this team. Do you want being the punt returner? Jamison Crowder doesn't really move the needle for you in terms of being a punt returner because he's older right now, but he can at least catch the ball and not fumble it. Like we saw last year. I mean, it destroyed the giants in the Seahawks game with Richie James. Yeah. And they really, and on the flip side of that, it's not like Richie James or anyone was giving them like crazy good returns that like flipped a few other games on the, on the opposite side. It was mostly what you just said. It was either, nothing on the returns or negative, which, which is just not where you want to be, but I'm with you. I don't really see. Yeah. I did get a tan in Vegas, my man. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew you loved love that. Oh, yeah. You knew I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Big dash. I appreciate you noticing the tan. Look, as I always say, I found out, uh, we'll get back to giants in a second, but I found out, um, a year or two ago by doing the 23 and me that I was 25% somewhere in my family. I'm 25. My dad is 50% Greek. So I'm 25% Greek. It's an incredible revelation for me. And now every time I get tan in the summer, because I do, I am a very pale person. And then I go out in the sun and I do put on a pretty good coat. I always say this is my Greek side coming out. So I'm going to have to have a little, uh, what am I going to have tonight? Maybe I'll have a little, uh, shawarma, something like that for dinner, something like that. Just can't go wrong with that. Max and feta Greek salad is right. Have you, are you into Greek salads, Nick? I feel like you, you yeah, of course. The Kalamata olives, the fe- good fresh feta, nice grape leaves. Like it's a great salad. It's probably, the, in my opinion, it's the best salad on the market. Like the best consi- Cobb or Greek is the best salad on the market. Cobb because you're getting, you know, hard boiled egg. You're getting a lot of like protein in there, which I like too. But as far as taste goes, I'll put Greek atop, up top there by far. Um, yeah, Where are you putting Caesars? Caesar. So Caesar is an interesting one. Caesar from a taste standpoint, a good Caesar. So let me tell you what I think a good Caesar has. I'm not talking like great Caesar. Like there are some Italian places that make the Caesar from scratch. Like, and I've seen them do it on like these Instagram videos and it looks insane. I don't know if I've ever ever even had a Caesar that's done that way. Like they're using like the anchovies, they're crushing it up. They're making that green paste or whatever first. I've never even heard of that. I've seen it on Instagram. So I'm talking like the next level below, but that like good, great, uh, that good, not great Caesar. I need a few things, Nick, and I know you'll agree with me. I don't like the mayo-based Caesar dressings. I like the vin- more vinegary-based Caesar dressing. There's one Ken's light Caesar dressing that they sell in, in the superstore supermarkets. Arguably one of my favorite dressings ever created for any salad. It's like a spicy-ish Caesar, and it's light. It's 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 like almost like yellowish green in color instead of that white Caesar with the, with the mayo base. And so I need that. But other than that, the reason I can't rank Caesar high, I've always found it to be somewhat overrated. It's literally just like romaine, croutons, parm. And dressing like they don't yeah. even put tomatoes in it. Like it's like it doesn't seem healthy. First of all, there's nothing healthy in it at all, really. No. And and I made that case once on on, on Twitter and got crushed for that by by one of um, the big bosses at CBS Sports. Shout out Adam, uh, who's like, what are you talking about? Like he's disgusted by my comment that it's the most overrated healthy food item you can have. But I really do feel like you're just getting like romaine lettuce croutons, which can't be good for you. Parmesan cheese not good for people like me who can't process dairy that well and then dressing with a mayo base like it's not it's not that great but anyway let's get back to some giants talk i got two uh one statement and then another question i want to go over so christy if thibodeau doesn't get held those sack numbers would be crazy 
I can agree. I think he probably got gypped out of a couple sacks. I don't know if they would yeah, be crazy. crazy. And I think holding happens. You could say that probably to a lot of different edge rushers. There were, I think, two or three like blatantly bad holds that did not get called for a Kayvon Thibodeau. I'm hoping now that he is not a rookie, he's starting to get the benefit of some of those calls. Maybe he's going to learn the nuance of talking to the refs and being like, hey, man, like, and, you know, no kind of the trick yeah. of the trade and, and get some of those holding penalties because some of them were glaring. But still, I, I stand by what I said a little earlier. I still want to see maybe a little bit more from Kayvon Thibodeau specifically as you head into year two year one that's fine you were injured you missed part of the season I get that you were still a good football player for the Giants but let's let's progress to that next level where we're like yo we really got a foundational building block yeah and I think we'll see that if he does take that step it'll be with his him doing an even better job of converting speed to power because I still think his best trade is his get off and you know he can find a way to use that to his advantage but I will say this on the holding comment I'm sure, and we did see a lot of holds on Thibodeau versus more than anyone on the Giants roster. And so, you know, it's out on Twitter. I know a lot of fans have that on their mind. You just brought it up. Good, good point. But like, I'm sure all other 31 teams have a player on their roster who was held every player you saw noticed was getting held a lot. And they're complaining the same way. So I just don't think he's the only guy there to do it. And I will say this, Nick, if I, uh, if I ever played in the NFL, I would pander so hard to the referees. I know so yeah. hard. I'd be such a panderer. I would never call them out. Like I saw Bosa called them out last year. I think it was uh, Joey, the one on the chargers. And yeah. I was just like, this is such a bad decision for his long-term career. Like, you know, he's going to get screwed now on holding calls. Cause like there's literally a hold on almost every play. So it's just basically subjective whether yeah. the refs want to call it or not. And so you got to get on their good side. Oh yeah. I play hockey dude. And I see it all the time. I see people like throwing fits at refs. I see adults getting kicked out of games. And I'm like, bro, if I take a penalty, it's usually warranted. And I just go to the box. Like I I never complain. If I don't agree with it, I'll be like, I don't know about that. And then I'll just like skate away. You know, like I don't (laughs) like, I don't understand why people get all up in their feelings all the time. But this is a good question from playoff. Who should get the green dot this year? Xavier McKinney or Bobby O'Karake? For me, it's Xavier McKinney simply because the Giants will always or will always have a safety on the field. They won't always have a linebacker on the field. Just because they got Bobby O'Karake doesn't mean they're not going to run quarter. Now, they're not going to run quarter over 10% of the time like they did in 2022, which was really insane. I don't think anybody even came close. I mean, you're talking about a defensive coordinator, Dan, that ran quarter, which means no linebackers on the field, all defensive backs beyond the first level and played cover zero as much as they did. Though, like he like had more than 10 percentile points than any other defensive coordinator in both of those yeah. categories. That's just how out there Wink Martindale is, and I absolutely love it. But in terms of uh, Xavier McKinney or Bobby Okereke, there's going to be plays where Bobby Okereke is not out there. It's not probably going to be too often, but there's going to be quarter personnel, and that's going to require Xavier McKinney to be out there over Bobby Okereke. And for that, I think he should get the green dot. Yeah, I would agree with everything you said. Plus, I would add on top of that, McKinney has one more year in the system, which is only going to help him from a communication standpoint. And I just think in general, I know the the trend is that, you know, you want the inside backer to wear the green dot. I think it's actually even more important for a safety to wear because I think the communication stuff is so much more important in the secondary than it is at that second level at linebacker. So I think you get a little bit of a slight edge there um, in, in that regard. And it's funny you mentioned, like, I love what you just brought up, how this is part of why I love Wink Martindale as a Giants defensive coordinator. And, and, I, and I'll say this. I was reading through um, a Giant – now I'm forgetting the name of the book that uh, – Greg Hanlon's book that we both read. I finished it in Vegas, by the way. Um, yeah, was a it giant called a giant, a giant Win. Giant, yeah. yeah. A Giant Win. So it's basically Tom Coughlin's book 
with Greg Hanlon, and we're going to have him on the show at some point. We're going to discuss it because I think there's some great takeaways in it. But one that I'm about to bring up from that book as Tom Coughlin's kind of running through the 2007 season and the 2007 Super Bowl run. He says that, and and this is something that I knew was true last year, watching the Giants defensive players in the locker room, watching them in, in training camp and practice and throughout the season in their in their pressers. Talking about Steve Spagnuolo in his first season there with the Giants as that young, fresh defensive coordinator, he talked about how players love playing for the defensive coordinators who are unique and aggressive, the ones who dictate, the ones who let their defenders play free and dictate rather than kind of the past systems we've seen with Perry Fuel, even Patrick Graham to an extent. And I love how Wink Martindale's doing unique things like running quarter when no one else is running it at anywhere near the same rate. Or, you know, like you said, having all the guys line up in the box and, and it just did the different things he did from a blitz and pressure standpoint. And so I'm excited about that. I wanted to get to one more question. Do you have one? Cause it, this one got a little lost, but I think it's a good one. No, no. Uh, tell me the timestamp. So 526 from our friend Monty. Uh, and he's going to ask, and this is a good one. I like this one. Who is both of your guys, dark horse impact player for the New York giants in 2023. And it's, 526. Yeah, you got it right there. Shout out Monty. So I'll let you go first, Nick. We might end up picking the same player. And Monty probably still thinks it's David Sills. That's that's what I'm yeah, No, no, he probably <laughs> no, that's wrong. He definitely, definitely doesn't think it's David Sills. He definitely thinks it's uh Bryce Ford Wheaton. Bryce, Bryce Ford Wheaton. Oh wow, Nick just because they got another West it, Virginia. I'm gonna get that wrong too for a bunch of the time, but I'm gonna say Bryce Ford Wheaton. Yeah, just say BFW too. Yeah, BFW. There we go. Yeah, so I think we could do a whole podcast on this. So if we're talking about yeah. the offensive side of the football, who is going to be the dark horse? No, overall, so, overall, overall. You got to pick one. Overall, mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Paris Campbell. Ooh. Ooh. Now, I like Paris Campbell's skill set. His whole thing is just he needs to stay healthy. But when you look at the wide receiver room, as, as many bodies have been added to it, the Giants added this guy for a reason. It's a prove-it deal. I think he... Knows Mike Rowe well. I think Mike Rowe really likes Paris Campbell. That's one reason why he was there. Remember, Mike Rowe coached Paris Campbell when he was over there in Indianapolis. If he can stay healthy, I think there's going to be a role here. And you have two of your other players who are competing to operate in the slot who are coming off of injuries. I'm hoping they'll be okay, but that's not a given. And I think Paris Campbell can slide into that Richie James type of role and play better because I think, frankly, he's a better player when he's healthy than Richie James. So if I had to pick somebody who is dark horse, remember, this isn't my, you know, well, he's better than Darren Waller, but if it's a dark horse player, it's Paris Campbell. Okay, I'm going to pick two here. I'm going to pick one on the defense side, one on the offense. So I'll go with my defense okay. first, so then you can have your defense, and I'll go with my offense because I'm going to pick a different player than Paris Campbell. So first on the defensive side of the ball, I'm gonna, my offensive side of the ball is somebody who – or sorry, on the defensive side of the ball, I'm going to pick a dark horse player who could make an impact in the box score. And this is the player who we've discussed a bunch that you and I are, I guess, not like – much higher on, but slightly higher on, I think, the consensus. And it's Dane Belton, the safety, the second-year safety out of Iowa. I just have this feeling in my head that Dane Belton is going to play a lot more than people expect this year with Julian Love gone. I know a lot of people are penciling in McLean, and people are saying – McCain and people are saying that um, uh, Jason Pinnock is going to play a big role still, and all these things are possible. But I just have a feeling Dane Belton's going to find his way on the field. And those near interceptions that we, that we saw last year, he's going to be a tick faster to the football. He's going to understand the defense and the off and, and the scheme of the, and the speed of the NFL just a little bit faster. And he's going to jump into some of those lanes and make the interception on the ball. And the Giants had so few interceptions last year. We always bring up the stat, Nick, about how 
few offensive explosive plays they had. Like you said, they were dead last in explosive plays on offense, but they were damn near close to dead last in interceptions on defense as well. They need players who can make plays on the football. I think Dane Belton is one of those players, especially if we're going to continue to see Xavier McKinney use around the box, over the slot, things of that nature. You're going to need somebody in that deep half to buzz down and make plays or even just, you know, play that deep half and make plays, uh, you know, like we saw um, at the catch point deep. We saw a little bit more in 2021. And so Belton's my pick. So what about for offense? You go your offense now and then I'll go, or you go your defense now and then I'll go my offense. Gotcha. So we have a lot of the listeners giving their opinions on the defense and I could see a lot of these guys hitting, but if I had to pick a dark horse, I'm going to say Darian Beavers. I think Darian Beavers coming back from that injury. It happened early against the Bengals in preseason. There's going to be a spot in base personnel for another linebacker. Who is that going to be? Gerard Davis, Micah McFadden, somebody else. I think Darian Beavers had the inside track to start at linebacker last year before that injury. And I think hopefully he picks up where he left off and he can be an impact player on early downs and possibly operate in certain nickel packages as well. I can definitely see it being a player like Cordell Flott, Bobby McCain, people are saying Aaron Robinson, that would be excellent. People are saying Javarius Owens, that would be really cool. But if I'm picking one right now, it's Darren Devers. I like that pick. And that's, I think all three have qualified as pure dark horses right now. I'm going to try to keep the dark horse going. So I'm not going to say who my original pick was on offense because my original pick is Josh Azudu, but I'm not sure that fits dark horse as well as maybe, maybe uh, the next player I'm going to bring up. My whole thing with Azudu is I think there's a good chance he shows up fully healthy for camp and this neck thing was not long-term and it was just something that he needed rest for at the end of the year and year two. For him, a player that flashed the way he flashed in the run game last year, I could see some big impact blocks in the run game from Josh Azudu. I still think we're probably going to see some issues in pass protection from Azudu this season, but run game, I expect good things. But I'm going to go with a different player. I'm going to go with Eric Gray, the rookie running back. And I just have a feeling that if and when the Giants re-sign Barkley to that three-year contract, I expect them to re-sign him to, might even be four. They're going to view how they utilize him a lot differently from that point on. It's not going to be the same thing as last year where we saw just an absurd snap share. I posted stats today that were I found a little bit troubling, and it was Barkley's forced missed tackle rate combined with his um, yards after contact per attempt. And I know, you know, some people don't like the stat because like Zach Moss was high in it, but there were a lot of other really good players high in it and players who struggled and running back low in it. And Barkley was toward the, you know, the lower half of that pack. And a lot of the issue, I think, with Barkley was just simply volume. He was just used too much and too often and he wore down at times and he just didn't get a lot of breaks. And Eric Gray is someone who I think can make an impact in the passing game in ways no one on this roster, including Saquon Barkley can. Yes, Saquon Barkley can do great things for you if you can throw him a flare pass and he gets a one-on-one, he gets somebody to miss. Yes, if the Giants could ever get their screen game going, I think Barkley could be a much bigger impact player than Gray is. But as far as running routes from the running back position and winning one-on-ones from running your routes, I think Eric Gray can do something Saquon Barkley can't. I think he's going to do it as early as this season. We're going to see impact plays from Eric Gray. And then more importantly, like I said, once Barkley signs that long-term deal, we're going to see a totally different snap share for Barkley this year. And Eric Gray, I think, will be the one who really cuts into it and earns that lion share, especially in the second half of the season, and then start to make big plays for the Giants but on a game-by-game basis. I, I'm very, very excited about his potential impact. And we know there's a role on this offense for a receiving running back not named Saquon Barkley. Matt Breida, I think, did a really good job operating in that role last season. And I think he'll have his He'll have his chances, but if Eric Gray is practicing better than him, if Eric Gray shows something a little bit different than Matt Breda, totally different players, mind you, then I think that role could be seized by Eric Gray. We got an interesting question from Tyler Dist. How does John Michael Schmitz match up versus 
Dallas and Philly. And you know what? I would throw Washington in there as well because oh, Washington, yeah. arguably, I would say Philly might have an edge. And I think there's definitely an argument here. Washington is more dangerous in terms of their interior defensive line than both Philly and Dallas. Actually, I would say that Washington yeah. is more dangerous. It's just Philly kind of has the those elite edge rushers. They operate in a different type of like five-man front a lot of the time, which can isolate blocks and stuff like that and lessen the ability to, to formulate combos. Either way. It's going to be tough for John Michael Schmitz in the division. Deron Payne and Jonathan Allen in Washington gave Nick Gates, John Halepay, whoever, they gave them all fits, dude. Philly, you have Jordan Davis, who's going to have to step up now. Jalen Carter, that's going to be really tough. You lost Javon Hargrave. Fletcher Cox is getting old, but still, that's a very tough assignment. And then Dallas, you have Mozzie Smith. And I'm so pissed that Mozzie Smith and John Michael Schmitz, despite playing in the Big Ten, never really squared up against each I other. Know. I several years, and I'm like, there's no damn tape of these guys. Mozzie Smith just wasn't earning snaps back in 2020, which uh, and John Michael Schmitz just never really ended up playing him. So that's going to be a fun matchup. That's the one that I'm most looking forward to for John Michael Schmitz. But Philly and Washington are going to be tough. Yeah, I think you nailed it as far as Washington is actually the most dangerous defensive interior front besides maybe the Giants. And this was kind of my big concern, Nick. I'm going to be honest with you. When it comes to John Michael Schmitz, this was always my big concern. And I'm not going to know the answer to this question until I see it personally. At least for me, I have no answer on this until I see it. Because I my whole thing with Schmitz is, yes, he looked awesome on film against Big Ten interior defensive linemen. But I have no idea what that means because Darren Payne was not on any field in the Big Ten. And if he was, it would have been he would have probably been the top five pick in this class. Like that, um, Mozzie Smith, you can say, but like you mentioned, there was no real film there. Right. And Jalen Carter was not matched up against J J uh, John Michael Smith at any point during John Michael Smith's college career. Like, and that's just a college player coming over. We're not even talking about all the retained players from both of those teams, Dallas as well, which I guess there's less to worry about there, but even like uh, a diggy Zua, like he, he had, he had some pretty good reps last year for the Cowboys. And I'm intrigued by like how he matches up in one-on-one -on -one if he gets matched up one-on-one -on -one against John Michael Smith. So for me, it's going to be a critical factor. I think we talked about Evan Neal as the main critical factor on the offense overall, besides Jones maybe, and also on the team overall. John Michael Schmitz is up there for me because he has so many tough matchups this year. And again, I saw him do it at the Big Ten level. I hope it translates one-to-one -one immediately, but I can't be sure of that. Like, it's just, I don't know how anyone could be sure of that. We look at these things sometimes on paper and we say, John Michael Smith was the number one graded center in this draft. That means he's a guarantee to be a good player. You want, no, it does not mean that. Offensive line is a tough position to translate to, especially when you're going up against real NFL stars like you're talking about, not like Big Ten stars. The NFC East is just killer in terms of their interior defensive line. I haven't broken down the other divisions, but think about what the Giants have. Leonard Williams, Dexter Lawrence, you sign Sean Robinson, you bring in Nacho, and all the other teams we just went over is just murderous row of defensive linemen. This is a really good question, and we're probably going to get out of here shortly. Yeah. So, Dan, if you have any other questions, please um, let me know, and I'll find them. Assuming we don't want a Minnesota Vikings-style Kirk Cousins purgatory, what does Daniel Jones have to do in the next three years to get another contract extension and be the true long-term answer here? And I think this is a really good question by Al. And for me, it would be, have an NFC championship appearance, at least, I think. Now, there's a lot of, and that's like a grand statement. There's a lot of context that goes into that, like what happened to the teams, all of that. But I think you need to see sustained development in terms of anticipatory throwing and a lot of the things that we question a little bit about Daniel Jones and success on the field. If he can do that in the next two or three seasons, then I think the Giants would feel comfortable. And also the options, if the Giants continue winning games and maybe scra scraping into the playoffs or just not making the playoffs or even making playoff runs a little bit. 
and they're picking 18th, 19th, how else are they going to get the quarterback? Yeah. That's another question that you really have to ask, and it's one that Joe Shane asked himself this season, maybe to a certain degree, before Daniel Jones really went on his run. Yeah, that was a great answer by Nick. Um, I'd add maybe a few things to that. I think the, the question as far as what the Giants will do is different than what maybe Nick or I would consider to be, you know, how does he prove he's the true long-term answer? Because it's the NFL, and as Nick just outlined, there is a reality that if you can't figure out any other option for you in that specific offseason at quarterback, sometimes you just continue to double down on the one you have. And that's, we've seen that with the Vikings, really. They haven't really had an opportunity, in my opinion, to draft a quarterback. Um, and so if the Giants are just kind of grinding through to wild cards over and over, they're going to probably have to, they're going to probably extend them. But as far as what will lead to a definite extension, I think Nick nailed it. A Super Bowl appearance will get you one all the time. We saw that with Jared Goff, immediate extension after the Super Bowl appearance. Um, so that that's kind of a lock. An MVP caliber season without a Super Bowl appearance will probably also get you an extension. We saw that with Carson Wentz during his season with the Eagles. I know he didn't finish it out. Nick Foles did. But Carson Wentz was playing at what people consider an MVP level until his injury. And then he got that extension, I believe. Was that right after that? I, I, I believe it was that offseason, but I could be. Well, it was 2017 was the MVP season. And I think Carson Wentz got that extension in 2019. And then they okay. drafted Jalen Hurts in 2020. Okay, so it was a couple years later, but I think it played a big role in his extension regardless. They were kind of trying to drag out that rookie contract, yeah. which I understand, to, to get the, the cap relief. So I think those things will lead to it. As far as like what do Nick and I need to see to believe that he can be um, in a, the, the long-term answer, somebody who can consistently take them to Super Bowls, Darius Smith, you, you've brought up a few things, good things in this comments. He needs to throw deep more, deeper more consistently too. That's a strength, things like that. Um, I would just say he needs to throw with anticipation a lot more. We still seen some good signs of it, not consistency, and he needs to start to figure out ways to consistently attack outside the numbers. And that will require good anticipation. That will require touch, ball placement, velocity, all of those things. But out of all four of those things, Nick, I feel like anticipation, anticipatory throwing stands out the most of any of those things, man. Like to utilize those areas of the field, the ball just has to be out of your hands fast and you just have to understand fast like you have to process this so fast like that area of the field will be open i gotta throw now i release it into that space the receiver will get there i have to trust my receiver to get there but that's the area of the field that will be open it's not you know go through your progressions and run which he did last year and it worked or you know hit the underneath option right away and that's the difference too is you can operate a pure progression type of system i go from the one to the two to the three that's what a lot of quarterbacks are taught but there are times when the defense does something, when they rotate a coverage, and maybe it's not what you thought pre-snap what it was going to be, and you know there's a certain area of the field that is now open, I need to attack that area of the field. It's having the decisiveness to maybe even get off of your progressions to find that area of the field that you saw, oh, I thought that safety was going there. Oh, now he's going to the middle of the field. That means the deep half is open. I have a one-on-one -on -one matchup with outside leverage. Oh, my wide receiver is going to win inside. Let me trust that. Let me bomb this. Those types of things. And that's something that happens very, very quick. And I just want to see that a little bit more consistently. That's exactly it. It's like there. what we'll see if we know if he really gets the level Nick and I want him to get to and believe he still can get to. It's going to be like he abandons that progression. He just throws, like you said, it's not go one, go two, go three. It's get the ball out fast because I saw something that wasn't there before the snap. And it's not within my expectations. But now that it's there. And now that it's going to be open at that point of the, you know, where I'm going to throw the football, 
throw the football now, get the football out into that space. And you got to lead the receiver. That's part of the anticipatory throwing. You got to trust the receiver. And that's the only argument that I kind of agree with when Giants fans say like, oh, the receivers were so bad. He couldn't really attack those areas of the field um, because he didn't have trust in those receivers. And that is true. Like you need to have your trust in those receivers that they'll get to that spot. And Jalen Hyatt is going to be a receiver. I think he's going to earn early trust with Daniel Jones in the sense that like, Okay, he can get to that spot. He has the kind of speed, the difference-making speed on those deep overs, like you said, those search routes. To get to the spot, I just need to get the ball out there to that spot, and I need to be confident that he'll get there. And obviously, you know, Hyatt has to prove that himself as well. Um, But I think, you know, when it comes to getting to that level, uh, another sign is just like, you know, a little less – Okay, Nick, this is an interesting thought, and we, we can close it out on this too, um, this whole Daniel Jones discussion. But like part of it I feel like at times is like – and he's been discussed this way in the past, and I don't think it's completely unfair. I don't think it's fully fair either. He's been discussed as a very robotic quarterback, right, who's going to go through his progressions. And you saw that a lot with the Jason Garrett error. You saw it with the Shermer error. There were different kinds of progressions with Jason Garrett. He wanted to go through the full field. With Shermer, he's like, all right, we'll cut off half the field. You can read high to low. Fine, but he's still going through like in a robotic way in some degree. Even this year with with Daniel with Brian Dable, Nick, I think a fair case can be made that it was somewhat robotic in what he did. Right, like he looks at that first read. If it's not there, take the B gap and run. That's a very point. You know, a very A B. Right. It's very like do this step one, step two, and. I think for Jones, and you even saw this, I think Brett Coleman broke it down, and he got a lot of hate from Giants fans on Twitter, which is just crazy. But during the Colts game, which was a good game for Jones and the entire team, there was a few routes where it's like, you know, the cut, he throws to the underneath guy, like I think it was Isaiah Hodgins, and against a, in a basic cover two defense where you know that, like, based on what the, the safeties are, how the safeties are rotating, you got to throw that whole shot there. But it's very, like, snap the ball, get through my reads and get through a to point A to point B. So I think it also has to just be like a natural change in how he almost processes the entire position in the sense that like, I have so much confidence in my receivers and in how I understand and process this offense that I can start going off track a little bit and throwing to space. When the giants evolved their offense from 12 personnel to 11 personnel, they really started using a lot of those quick hitting passes to the number two receiver in two by two sets. A lot of teams caught on to it. Washington caught on to it a little bit in that second matchup. And then the Vikings did, the Colts did. And that's one of the plays that Coleman was talking about and that you're referring to right now. Because you had a nine route, I think, from the number one receiver. And Isaiah Hodgins was a number two, just sat there. But the the player, the defensive player, the cornerback covering the flat was waiting and sitting on the two. If the two went to the flat, he was going to jump the two, try to get an interception, or just absolutely annihilate the wide receiver. We talked about this on our stream a little bit, too, after the game. You can't put your wide receiver in that position, in that situation to get absolutely clobbered like that. And those are little things where it's like, okay, like you said, see the safeties rotate. You know you're going to have that whole shot. You can take the number one there, but you would just settle, okay, I have the number two right now. And as you throw that football, you already have that cornerback plant and driving downhill on it. And then your wide receiver is going to focus on the football and get absolutely annihilated. And that happened, I think, once also against the Minnesota Vikings. So those are little things that Daniel Jones can clear up in terms of just decision-making against certain defenses, because at the end of last year, when the Giants were having success, that's some of the, some of the, uh, the ways the defense kind of altered their game against the Giants was to sit on and attack the Giants quick game. We also saw it with the James Bradbury interception in the playoffs. Yeah. And basically everything the Giants tried to run against the Eagles in that game, they were sitting Uh, on everything. And I think, the final point on that that I would that I would want to make is that I think about a lot about that Washington game, that first Washington game where, you know, we broke it down on the all 22 on this page and we, we showed how like there were there were snaps where 
the, you know, Dak Del Rio, Washington commander's defense coordinator, just simply rotated the corner out of the, out of the picture from the field side. And it was just like, uh, what are you laughing at here? Dan is out of the shadows. Your last couple podcasts, you oh, were yeah, yeah, yeah. In the yeah, shadows yeah. in Vegas, yeah. the Vegas shadows. Um, and where he would just rotate the corner out of the play to the field side. And then Jones wouldn't look to the field side at any point, which is fine because like people would say like, we don't know the progressions. Progression might just be look to that side of the field and you have a quick one to get the ball out. I understand the, the idea was to never look to the field side at any point, but the point what I'm trying to make, and I think you're trying to make as well is this is kind of a more overall point. The best quarterbacks in the NFL, you cannot do that to them. Because you know that if you do that to them, they're going to see it every time. They might fake you out. They might make it look like I don't see what's going on over there. I'll quickly snap my head to the to the to the other side of the field and work that one too. And then they'll snap back to the field side and they'll rip the ball into that hole because they're well aware of what's going on. And then defensive coordinators and defenses can never do the things that you said, like in the Colts game where he comes down, or in the Washington game where they're rotating corners at the field side and leaving it wide open because they know the ball's never going there. When you get to that point as a quarterback, that's when I know for sure the Giants have their like Eli Manning, their Super Bowl guy that I can count on to win Super Bowls. You got to get to the point where he's so good at recognizing things that the defenses are doing, and he's so good at coming off his progressions fast to hit those spaces and to hit those hole shots and whatever it may be, that defenses can no longer do those little tricks of the trade to kind of give themselves an advantage and give themselves kind of extra players to defend where the ball's actually going to go because it could actually go anywhere on the field at any time. 100% correct. Everything that you just said is something that Daniel Jones and the Giants coaching staff are well aware of. And if they face Washington, if they face any of these defensives and they attempt to do it, I expect the Giants to have some sort of plan to attack the field side. And if they don't and they keep throwing to very congested areas of the field and they just neglect to attack the field side, I think we have a problem. And we'll end it right there. I like that, Nick. Bill Hartnett says, you guys got to do this more often. I'm learning a lot more about football in general, just listening to you guys with the 11s and 12s, X receiver, you guys know so much. So thank you for that, Bill. I really appreciate this. We do plan to do this a lot more. We we enjoyed this. This was our first run. We'll probably get smoother and better with it as we go. But the expectation is we're going to do more of these live Q&As on YouTube. And then for those of you listening probably now that weren't that didn't view this on YouTube, we are turning this into a podcast as well. So for I know it's not everybody likes the YouTube or, or does the YouTube, but um. But but we will turn this into podcasts as well. So keep an eye out for that, too. Um, and, and one final thing as we sign off here, Nick, because you got to do it. And we didn't do it at the beginning of the podcast. Please help support the show by if you're watching this now, hit the like button. If you didn't hit the like button yet on this video, you're not my friend. And the minute you hit that like button, you're now my best friend because that's all we want. We want likes on these videos. They're very important for the YouTube algorithm. So please hit the like button now. It's It takes one second of your time. And it's completely free. I would also appreciate if you subscribe to this YouTube channel. There's the subscribe button up top somewhere. So some, at some point, we're going to get tech savvy enough to get the like subscribe button on the video and stuff like that. Neither Nick or I know this type of stuff right now, but we, we will figure it out. We'll make that our goal. But please hit the subscribe button. Uh, DKit says, is that the thumbs up, thumbs down button? Yes, the thumbs up, thumbs down button. Hit the thumbs up button, please, to like this video. Like is the same thing as hitting that thumbs up. If you hit the bell button, you'll also get notifications for when we go live. So if you're not following on Twitter or whatever it may be, you can. Uh, yeah, there you go, Darius Smith. Let's all be Dan's best friend. I have a, I have an opening for a lot of best friends here uh, on the show. And so, yeah, hit subscribe button as well. And then finally, one final way to support us is. Um, no, I know you were kidding, D-Kit, but I, but I liked it. One final way to support us is by going to your iTunes or your podcast app and making sure you subscribe and rate and review our show on iTunes as well. We're getting close to 1K uh, ratings there. We want to get to 1K. It's been a goal for a long time. That also helps us move up the algorithm. 
and get the show out to more people, which is very important to us. It's the most important thing to me specifically reach because I keep hearing from a lot of people. Oh, I found your show two months ago and now I love it. and I don't miss a show. And it's like, damn it. How did it go? Like, how did I do? How did Nick and I do this for three years? And you guys didn't know about this. And I want to make sure all those people who will enjoy this content get the content. That's the most important thing. Um, and as Tom Ty, Ty says, thank you, Tom Ty. Just play, don't just hit play. Please download the show. That's literally what matters, uh, by the way, for podcasters. So just in general, if you support a podcast, not just this one, any other one, hit the download button, not just the like. And you can literally delete it right after downloading it. But as long as you download it once and then delete it and then hit play, that's all we need. So anyway, a lot of talk right there, a lot of promotion at the end of the show. I enjoyed this, though. This was a lot of fun. I could do this literally all day with you, Nick. So we'll continue to do these. We'll think of uh, some kind of schedule or anything like that. But um, for as Mark B says, all right, anything else I need to do? Yeah, I think that's it, Mark. I think that covers it. Um, but I appreciate it. Nonetheless, I do really appreciate it. You do any of that stuff to help support the show. But um, other than that, have a great rest of your week. And we'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.